the state of the magical union is profoundly messed up. You are listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for constitutional scholars. The charges against the accused are as follows. That he did knowingly, deliberately, and in full awareness of the illegality of his actions, having received a previous written warning from the Ministry of Magic on a similar charge, produce a Patronus charm in a muggle-inhabited area, in the presence of a muggle. You are Harry James Potter of Number 4 Privet Drive, Little Whinging, Surrey. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to The Quibbler. This week we are reading chapters once again from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. They are The Ministry of Magic and The Hearing. You will hear, I think, probably a lot of cursing because this is a very annoying pair of chapters. You will hear spoilers for this and past and future Harry Potter plots. And you will hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are show trials, commuting, cubicle decorations, uncivil servants, and the rights of the accused. Alex, what happened this week? In this week's chapters, Harry has to get up early to go to his Ministry of Magic disciplinary hearing. So Harry's feeling very nervous. So nervous that he only has toast and I think some marmalade. So Harry goes into the office with Arthur, who works at the Ministry, as we may recall. Arthur is like number one never uses the subway tourist. He's counting down the stops and is very impressed by various ticket machines. (laughs) Arthur and Harry enter the Ministry of Magic via a telephone booth, so that's super UK. Harry's jaw drops when he sees the Ministry of Magic. I mean, it does sound like it's really pretty. Yeah, I mean, it sounds impressive, I guess. But I know there are all these, like, Harry looked around as though he didn't know that he goes to magic high school. <laughs> like, just, you're right. <laughs> it's astonishing. Things are flying. People are arriving via fireplace. We've seen it all before, man. This is just more governmenty. It's still pretty cool. There's a big, giant statue of magical brethren. There's like a big, noble-looking wizard and a witch and various magical creatures looking up at them adoringly. Harry has to get his wand weighed and inspected. Um, We get an impromptu tour of the Ministry of Magic thanks to the elevator spokesperson. It's like a voice in the elevator. The elevator spokesperson. I don't, it's like a voice, you know, it's like a voice in the elevator. The announcer. The announcer. The public address announcer calling out the various lift stops, which include, among other things, the official Gobstones Club, and the Ludicrous Patents Office. I also like the Flu Network Authority, because it reminds me of the Port Authority. (laughs) Those guys are probably just, like, corrupt and bad at their jobs. (laughs) And the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, which incorporates Beast Being and Spirit Divisions. I thought that was really cool. So I guess ghosts are regulated, too. So there's death and taxes, but it seems like in the wizarding world, maybe taxes follow you into death. (laughs) Oh, also in the uh, Department of Magical Accidents and Catastrophes, there is an office called the Muggleworthy Excuse Committee. Yeah, that's also pretty amazing. (laughs) They don't do a great job, actually, though, of that. It doesn't seem like. What do they do? They just come up with, like, things that could plausibly have happened that muggles will believe rather than... Like, for incidents. Anyway, so that, we get, like, a little Dante's Inferno tour of the Ministry as they're descending deeper into uh, the bowels of the wizarding government. We also meet a fire-breathing chicken. We don't see the chicken. The chicken's in a box. It seems to be a case of someone breaking the law on breeding. You would think they would put a fire-breathing chicken in something more secure than a cardboard box. <laughs> was it a cardboard box? Yes, it yeah, was. Yeah, it's a straight-up cardboard box. That thing's going to catch on fire. Yes. Also in the lift, there are various interdepartmental memos that are paper airplanes that are just flitting between offices. So that is magical. Sort of. It sounds irritating. In... <laughs> Harry and Arthur leave super early so that they don't miss the hearing. So Harry gets to kick around in Arthur's office for a while. He has lots of 
funny tchotchkes on his desk, including a hiccuping toaster and a pair of work gloves whose fingers keep twiddling themselves. That actually strikes me as really creepy. The twiddling fingers, those, yeah. Those <laughs> gloves sound terrifying. Oh, we also see the Aurors office, which is filled with posters of Sirius Black and like a map of all the places he might be because Kingsley Shacklebolt is running this sham investigation <laughs> and he asks Arthur for a report on muggle vehicles because they wink wink think that Sirius Black might be using his motorbike still but Arthur says he's super slammed and there's like a funny joke about firearms <laughs> Kingsley calls them fire legs and Arthur's like please read my reports in more detail but the whole time they're like pretending they don't know each other, right. which is the like funny part of that scene. And wink wink, Molly's making meatballs. They're like not that subtle about this, because Kingsley literally winks at Harry. So yeah, Arthur and Harry are killing time until but but motherfucking Perkins runs in. Who the fuck is Perkins? He's just the co-worker. Perkins fucking saves the day because he says, Yo, Harry, your hearing time has been changed, as well as the location. It was going to be in Madame Bones' office. Now it's in courtroom 10. You guys got a boot scoot. Arthur and Harry have to run down to courtroom 10 past the Department of Mysteries and down a spooky stairwell because the lift doesn't even go to courtroom 10. Must be an older part of the building. They get to courtroom 10. Arthur can't go inside. Harry has to go by himself. He opens the door and but but ba it's the motherfucking courtroom from the Pensieve chapter in Goblet of Fire where high-level criminals were tried. He finds the entire Wizengamot assembled in plum-colored robes being presided over by not only Madame Bones, but also Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, and Dolores Umbridge, the senior undersecretary to the Minister of Magic. So there are a lot of state resources being poured into this uh, basically like juvenile case. Fudge very brusquely starts the interrogation also, Percy is taking notes and pretending not to notice Harry. So, fuck Percy. Yeah, Percy's the worst. And just kind of nodding sycophantically. sycophantically at everything the minister says. Harry is feeling very alone, and then motherfucking Dumbledore walks in. He's Harry's defense attorney. He presents himself as a witness, but he's basically an attorney. Yes. Anyway... Fudge is, like, very put off by the fact that Dumbledore showed up because Fudge clearly tried to also make it so Dumbledore would miss the meeting by, like, sending the schedule update extremely late. But luckily, Dumbledore got there three hours early. So for some reason, there's not an extra chair for Dumbledore, so he conjures his own squashy chintz armchair like a badass. The trial proceeds. Fudge keeps like interrupting Harry and not letting him explain any of the extenuating circumstances. Basically says, did you or did you not conjure Patronus? Oh, you did? Okay, guilty. Let's snap your wand and exile you from the wizarding world forever. But Dumbledore doesn't let that shit fly when Fudge calls into question whether or not this Dementor attack actually happened. He says basically it's Harry's word and Harry is a known fabulist. Dumbledore says, whoa, step back. We have a witness, Arabella Fig. So Fig comes in, gives testimony, says, yeah, I saw the Dementors. Fudge turns various shades of red and purple and mauve and, and just other uncomfortable anger shades. <laughs> uh, Dumbledore says, the real issue here is that fucking Dementors were in little whinging. He basically calls for a special counsel to investigate whether the Dementors are out of control or not. Then Dolores Umbridge pipes in. This is the first we've ever seen of her. She sort of looks like a toad, but she has this high girlish voice and a silvery laugh that makes the like hair on Harry's neck stand up. And she says, surely you're not saying the Ministry ordered this attack. <laughs> 
Dumbledore says, yeah, if it's not that, then the Ministry's lost control of its Dementors, and that's a problem, too, but... Let's get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Uh, there's some. There's a various back and forth with Dumbledore and Fudge. Finally, Bones calls for a vote using her signature catchphrase, "Roll them bones." That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And Harry is cleared by a solid majority, but Fudge, Umbridge, and about a half dozen others vote to convict. Dumbledore vanishes the armchairs. He, yeah, he also conjured an armchair for Mrs. Fig, because Dumbledore is cool like that, and leaves without making eye contact with Harry. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. All right, so that was stressful. She writes about stress so well. These chapters are, like, so emotionally resonant and you're biting your nails the entire time it's so upsetting it's kind of similar to the dread that she conjures before the tasks of the triwizard tournament yeah when you're just right there with harry feeling the absolute cold water panic that's absolutely filling him i think she evokes that so well there's that line about he's trying to eat toast but he may as well be chewing on carpet and just everything about this is so spot on in terms of how stressed out he is. And I felt stressed out reading these the entire time. Also, everyone is sort of gathered at the breakfast table and naturally early to give him moral support. But it seems to be accomplishing the opposite effect. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> making him so much more yeah. skittish. You know, when you're like, oh, shit, there's a whole bunch of grownups here. I just don't want to talk to anyone. Like, please don't make me talk. Yeah. And they're all kind of like, you'll get a fair shake. And then Sirius low-key is like, if you don't, I'll kill them. Again, bro, like, you are unhelpful. Your heart is in the right place. But, like, just act like a grown-up, please. <laughs> I think Mr. Weasley, though, is the perfect companion for a morning like this. Absolutely. He's just so calm. It's probably really relaxing for Harry to have to, like, guide Mr. Weasley through the tube in a way yeah just like gives him something to focus on other than this upcoming doom mr weasley is low-key psyched also to be commuting to work like a muggle yeah yeah so they're having this fun little adventure together even though harry is having the least fun he's like ever had basically so they commute to the ministry and let's just talk about what the deal is at the ministry of magic the doors closed, the lift juddered upward again, and the woman's voice said, Level 6, Department of Magical Transport, incorporating the Flu Network Authority, Broom Regulatory Control, Port Key Office, and Apparition Test Center. Once again, the lift doors opened, and four or five witches and wizards got out. At the same time, several paper aeroplanes swooped into the lift. Harry stared up at them as they flapped idly around above his head. They were a pale violet color, and he could see Ministry of Magic stamped along the edges of their wings. Just interdepartmental memos, Mr. Weasley muttered to him. We used to use owls, but the mess was unbelievable. Droppings all over the desks. As they clattered upward again, the memos flapped around the swaying lamp in the lift's ceiling. This scene for me is she packs a lot of whimsy in there and makes some really fun choices with just the milieu of the ministry, but I find it really sloppy. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions about like why the ministry is the way it is. How so? Well, okay, what is security checking for? It's not a fucking metal detector. Yeah, <laughs> wood detector. <laughs> yeah, but they already, they take his wand, and then beyond that, what could a wizard possibly, like, you have a gun. Yeah, basically, everyone is armed. It's mandatory gun ownership in the wizarding world. I guess it, like, generates a receipt. It's just a record that you were there. But they, like, pass, like, a wand over him. Do they? Yeah, they do. Like, they pass, like, a some kind of gold, kind of, like... It, it must be looking for various cursed items or other weapons. I guess so. Although I just, you have the most you badass have the weapon, most powerful possible imaginable. weapon. Like, what could be worse than just your fucking wand? You'd think that you would just have to straight up surrender, surrender your wand. Surrender your wand. Yeah. Although the thing that's crazy is that I mean, grown wizards like can't be without their wands. Right. Like, that's their main way of like. 
I don't know, doing shit. Yeah, I, it, it, it seems dicey to have a government office that everyone can just walk in with a handgun to. But, well, uh, it gets dicey as fuck at the end because <laughs> there's this, like, absolute showdown at the government. <laughs> Another question. This is not a question. I like the statue a lot. It's a really good detail. It's super problematic and upsetting. But I do wonder why those particular creatures are the ones that the ministry chose to represent the magical brethren. It's a goblin and a house elf. And a centaur. And a centaur. Well, I really like this detail because it tells us a lot about what the current magical regime thinks of itself. Because that's what statuary does, right? It's like a values statement. But it's like sort of inclusive. They're saying like, these are fellow like magical creatures. And we're all in this community together. But also wizards and witches are like a little bit better. It's a really strong, obvious statement of wizard and witch supremacy in the middle of their government in a way that's like really upsetting. It makes me wonder how old it is. Yeah, I wonder that as well, but, you know, well, I guess this is the debate we're having in the muggle world. Like, do you tear shit like that down just because it's old and it, like, doesn't express your values anymore? Like, yeah, take it down. It's not particularly contemporarily relevant. Well, the statue's an interesting detail because it does get changed in Book 7 when Voldemort's lackeys take over the ministry. Oh, that's true. That's true. It is. so that, And they that... change it to make it, like, even more upsetting. Right. <laughs> it very much reminds me of, like, kind of a Victorian-era paternalism. The statue of, like, Teddy Roosevelt outside the Natural History Museum, where he's, like, astride a noble steed, and there's the grateful savage, like, at his side. And they're kind of, like, looking into the future together. Ugh. We should take that down too. But you know what I mean? It's like I absolutely yeah. know it's what like you mean. a yeah. It's very like it's it's a very colonialist statue. It is very and it's very realistic. The description of the statue is incredibly realistic. Um like it it sounds like something that you're right that like a muggle government would erect. Right. Um so I think that's actually a really good detail, but I I just I mean, you know, they picked whatever kind of random representative creatures they picked. Well, those are sort of the three... Those are the three kind of wizard-aligned ones, mostly. Like, right. they don't really, like, collaborate with, like, giants or, like, werewolves or vampires. Those are seen as, like, dark creatures. Those are the, the centaur, goblin, house elf are the three that wizards kind of, like, do business with. But it's interesting because at this point in the series, we already know that this is... This statue is a fucking lie, right? We know right away in Sorcerer's Stone that the centaurs have, like, no time for wizards bullshit. Yeah. Uh, goblins are skeptical at best. Right. We just learned that in, like, the last chapter mm -hmm. from the conversation among the Order of the Phoenix. And, and house elves occupy this, like, yeah, this totally low status position. So, which the statue doesn't deny, but it paints a happy... Right, like a much put, rosier put, yeah, picture. Yeah, puts a happy face on it. Yeah. Another thing about the statue is it probably is weirdly controversial with pure blood types. Like the blacks would probably hate this statue, right? Because you're not saying that house elves, centaurs, and goblins are equal to witches and wizards. But you're calling but you, them their, your brethren. Right. I mean, you're so this was them... probably like kind of a controversial statue when it was first built because it was seen as really progressive, but it's actually not. We have so many things like that in the United States where like at the time it was seen as like an overly inclusive view of like who deserved to be called like human. And now we're like, no, this is problematic as fuck in the opposite direction. Yeah, so it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. interesting. Okay, another problem I have with the Ministry is why do they have lifts? Why do they have elevators? Maybe they're magically powered. But doesn't that seem like exactly the kind of thing that Arthur Weasley would be like, oh, muggles and their ingenious inventions. Like, lifts just seem so unwizard, And they're like really regular muggle elevators. Like, they don't seem to be doing anything magical. They're just opening at different floors. <laughs> I of all of the like incredibly bizarre convoluted ways wizards have of like people moving. Maybe, I'm shocked that they have lifts. Like where did that idea come from? Maybe rolling 
was just like, oh, fuck it. I cannot think of another way to move these people around. Yeah. Elevators it is. I mean, that makes total sense to me. And it's a good set piece because you do get this sort of like, like you said, like a Dante's Inferno tour of the ministry. But the whole time I was like, just wizards wouldn't have elevators. There's just no way wizards have elevators. They're much too medieval for that. They have stairs. That's true. Like Hogwarts, yeah, doesn't, Hogwarts have doesn't have elevators. I mean, to what? be fair, Hogwarts is like an old castle. But it doesn't make any sense to me that they would have lifts. (laughs) There's also like this really interesting reference to basically like a labor dispute, which I thought was really funny. The magical maintenance people are in charge of, first of all, this is crazy, are just in charge of choosing the weather. Their way of like expressing displeasure around their wages was to make the weather outside a hurricane every day for weeks because they wanted to get paid more. Now, I got a question. Does that make it also really loud and distracting? Yeah, it I must. don't understand why must, that would be that big a deal. It must be more than... Just like looking out the window and seeing that it's windy. Right. It must also like clatter around like an, it would in an actual hurricane. Yeah. I thought that was a hilarious detail. That's actually pretty good office design because, you know, you get a little sunlight. It kind of sucks to work underground. Well, that's the thing that's weird, though, is like, why would you ever have anything other than sunlight? Like, what do you mean they pick the weather every day? Just make it sunny. Because they like uh, variety. No, that's gloomy days aren't like good for productivity, though. These are people that need to think about like productivity and like how (laughs) and like actual like effective office design. They have these paper airplanes that just seem really inefficient and annoying. Like, just get fucking email. Here's the thing that's annoying about the paper airplanes. What if you want to send one message to multiple people, such as CCing? Maybe they have carbon paper for that. But I mean, how... It's like so much paper. Just get email. Well, it's like... We're sort of the dawn of email right now. It's like, what? Like, 1996 or something like that? I guess that's true. It might be 1995 by this point. I guess that's true. Never mind. So they wouldn't have had it anyway. Well, I mean... They would have, like, an early AOL. Like an intranet. Yeah, something like that, you know. Arthur's probably got, like, a whole bunch of those AOL disks, like, stacked up on his desk. And he's <laughs> he like, like uses them as, what like, is this? Yeah. So they probably didn't have America Online in the United Kingdom, did they? Yeah, it's true. Since what did you guys America have? Online. I don't know. Britain Online. Maybe they did. Yeah, overall, these, like, the scene is really fun. The ministry, like, you get to see cool stuff. But I think the writing is kind of, like, I think it's a little messy. I think it just, like, loses a lot of threads in the effort to be really, like, fun and set PC. Well, yeah, she's going for, like, a pastiche of a muggle office. Yeah, which I get, and it's it works, but it's there's not the attention to detail that one would hope, I think, in describing the ministry. I love the image of the paper airplanes just zooming around, though, because it creates the feeling of, like, hustle bustle. It does, yeah. Yeah, I think having them around would be really stressful. Like, that kind of, like, motion all around you all the time, I think that would be very irritating. <laughs> Overall, I don't think the paper airplanes are a good idea. I think they're it's cute, but... It also seems like it'd be really hard to send something confidentially, because someone could just, like, just snatch your yeah, message you can't send out anything of the confidential. sky. You can't send anything very long. It has to fit on one sheet of paper. Oh, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, but I mean, what if you want to send, like, a document? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. None of this seems to work all that well. You have to make two paper airplanes to... (laughs) Well, whatever, they can't... You can probably enchant any size paper to fly, right? Instead of enchanting paper to fly, you should just have electronic... It would be really hard to get all that folded paper to lie flat. Yeah, that too. And it's just like... Everything about it seems annoying. You could use a decreasing charm to uncrease it. Do people fold their own paper airplanes? Or do you like... Does a memo like come that way? Like I maybe just, they fold themselves. I have a lot. Once of they questions go into the outbox, I have a lot of questions about this. It's better than using owls, though. Arthur says because yeah. before, well, There's the mess was shit crazy. everywhere. There's owl shit covering <laughs> the entire Ministry of Magic. That's disgusting. I do like Arthur's cubicle. I feel bad that he can't just tinker like go be an auto mechanic. Yeah, he seems like he'd be happier just like... As a muggle. Yeah. He seems more interested in like gizmos and actual science and engineering. Yeah. Than casting charms. I was just thinking when I was reading these chapters that it really is too bad that the wizard and muggle worlds are as segregated as they are from each other for people like Arthur. 
Yeah, who would have a lot of fun, like you, like you said, being a mechanic or making, I don't know, just like putting circuits together. Or <laughs> There's a lot of things that Arthur would be better at than being a bureaucrat in this horrible, horrible government. <laughs> also, they have cubicles. That's not very, that is the least magical thing, but kind of funny. Sad desk jobs aside, let's get into the meat of this episode, which is Harry Potter's Trial by the Wizengamot. You are Harry James Potter of Number 4 Privet Drive, Little Whinging, Surrey? Fudge said, glaring at Harry over the top of his parchment. Yes, Harry said. You received an official warning from the Ministry for using illegal magic three years ago, did you not? Yes, but... And yet you conjured a Patronus on the night of the 2nd of August, said Fudge. Yes, said Harry, but knowing that you are not permitted to use magic outside school while you were under the age of 17? Yes, but knowing that you were in an area full of muggles? Yes, but fully aware that you were in close proximity to a muggle at the time? Yes, said Harry angrily, but I only used it because we were... The witch with the monocle on Fudge's left cut across him in a booming voice. You produced a fully-fledged Patronus? Yes, said Harry, because a corporeal Patronus? A what? said Harry. Your Patronus had a clearly defined form? I mean to say it was more than vapor or smoke? I really like this plot twist because, to me, this book is all about, like, teenage disillusionment, right? And... Harry's been coming to a realization about this for a while, but I, I really like that Harry finds out that, like, in this book more than any other so far, that sometimes adults don't have your best interest at heart. And in fact, sometimes they have the absolute opposite of your best interest at heart. Not just adults, but the adults that you're meant to trust. Right, yeah, like, the government. It's like, it's interesting in this book that Harry learns that the government is not always good. No. And the government's trying to actively fuck you over In often. this case, it's bad. Yeah, they have a really bad government. You know, and there are, like, Harry knows that it's not like a hard and fast rule that, like, government is bad because he knows good people in government. Harry realizes a couple of things here. He realizes, A, they are not out here to try to do any right by me. But B, they're a mess. Like, it's like a two for one because he is seeing the ineffectiveness and inefficiencies of this body at the same time as he's seeing the real sinister nature of the Minister of Magic's efforts to discredit him in Dumbledore. And uh, yeah, the colossal unfairness of it is also just such a teen feeling. It's such a teen feeling. I just remember being so wrathful on Harry's behalf when I read this as a teenager because I was like, this is what it feels like to deal with grownups all the time. And that's what she writes about really well is she takes those like emotions of feeling like adults don't understand you. They don't want you to get what you want. They are totally arbitrarily making rules that don't seem to have any benefits. It's just to like, you know, make your life miserable. Like that's how you feel as a teenager. And even if that's not an accurate feeling, she's really good at taking that and making it literal and putting it in these scenes. So you relate to Harry so strongly because just the arbitrariness of it is so infuriating and that feeling of not being listened to which yeah. is like the most teenager feeling like his whole yes but yes but yes but and he just like cannot get a word in edgewise and that's like what it feels like to be a teen is you're just like no you're not fucking hearing me there's a whole thing going on that you're not paying attention to and how can you not give me the chance to tell you what that whole thing is which is why i like angry harry it really gets at something true about the 15-year-old experience where you have a huge persecution complex. And in this case, Harry's literally being persecuted. Yeah, but he has a persecution complex on top of being persecuted because he feel <laughs> feels persecuted by the people that are trying to help him and persecuted by the people who are persecuting him. Also, he's just responding accurately to his world in a lot of cases, which, yeah, like you said, I think 15-year-old Harry is so true to life and so relatable. It's just like that feeling like adults don't get what's important. They don't understand like how real your life is. They don't understand how real your experiences are. Harry's trying to say, 
no, this really horrible thing happened and that's why I made the choice I made. And even if we don't all have literal dementors in our lives, like that's a thing that you've tried to tell an adult before if you've ever been a teen. It's just like, you don't fucking get it. Like I was responding accurately to like whatever like high school trauma was like inflicted upon me. Not being allowed to go to a party is a big fucking deal. It's like, no, this is my life. You have to treat it like it's real. And Harry's just having that experience, and I really appreciate it. But on, like, an epic, magical oh, level. Oh, yeah, I know. On a, and on a true level. But I think she just captures his emotions really beautifully. That being said, as much as I like how this trial fits into the book thematically, this whole Wizengamot thing doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I understand that the trial is supposed to be a sham. Fudge is clearly setting him up. But the way this thing is run is such a shit show. It just doesn't feel believable. Like, it just doesn't feel... So Fudge has made a stupid plan. (laughs) But, like, why did Madame Bones go along with it? Like, there's all these regular grown-ups. Like, all these members of this incredibly venerable judicial body weren't, like... Cornelius, this is weird, man. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. It just seems like there's a lot of, like, points of failure in this plan. I just don't find it believable that all these grown-ups would go along with well, it. I guess even besides the fact that Fudge's plan is terrible for various reasons, there doesn't seem to be much due process in how the Wizengamot works. Harry just rolls in. Fudge makes, like, a cursory statement to, like, get the ball rolling. There's not even, like... Harry's, like, not even sworn in, like, under oath. Dumbledore just walks in and says, oh, by the way, I'm basically Harry's lawyer now. There's, like, no... There's no, like, regular order. Yeah, there doesn't... Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any regular order. There's no, like, routine to the questioning. (laughs) It just seems completely random. Mrs. Fig is just randomly there. She doesn't have to be, like, entered into the record in any way. Dumbledore's like, oh, no, she's just right outside. Like, I'll just go fucking get her. And it's like, what? And, yeah... You don't have to, like enroll your witnesses ahead of time fudge brings up the if we have any lawyers listening please uh send us your thoughts on how this for sure have lawyers listening yeah i know i I know we have at least one lawyer at least one (laughs) please send us your thoughts on how this trial operates at one point fudge just starts bringing up like what probably should be inadmissible evidence about harry performing the the levitation charm, which she doesn't even perform. Which she didn't it was even do. Dobby's fault. And then Harry says, Oh, that was a house health, and we could bring the house health here, like, right now. So I this is just like a mess. And I can't tell if it would have been really boring to write boring or too like time consuming to write like a really tight wizarding courtroom scene. Like, would readers have cared about all that? procedural stuff probably would have been really boring but i'm also like this trial procedurals are the literal most popular kind of entertainment i guess you're right The procedural part is absolutely possible to write interestingly the wizards just don't have it right all right well yeah and i guess that is kind of part of wizarding culture right they're like really slipshod they're just a mess over there they're like weirdly obsessed with bureaucracy but then they don't follow their own rules. Their bureaucracy very well. is so yeah, it's just sloppy. I keep coming back to Madame Bones because she just seems like a really professional judge. She seems to take her job really seriously. She seems to be really thoughtful and be weighing the evidence. And it's like, how do you fucking exist in this system? Isn't this just really irritating for you, Amelia <laughs> Bones? Like, don't you wish that you had I don't know, a list of people who would be appearing before you in court today. Don't you wish that maybe there were like just places people had to sit so they didn't have to literally make their own chairs and armchairs are not (laughs) like a, I'm sorry, a chintz armchair is not an appropriate seating implement for a court of law. Like Dumbledore is being flagrantly obnoxious, despite the fact that I'm on his side. Just like have some rules, you guys. He is weirdly sassing them. Yeah. To the point where it's like, dude, maybe you don't want to do that if you're trying to get Harry acquitted. (laughs) He's like in contempt. Yeah, and he's basically been disbarred at this point because he used to be on the Wizengamot. Yeah. So it's kind of weird that he's even allowed to, like, represent clients before the court. It also just must be so awkward for all of the rest of them to be like, oh, hey, Dumbledore. Well, it is awkward. There's, like, kind of weird shifting, and some people are, like, psyched to see Dumbledore, and others uh, Like, pretend they have to, like, tie their shoes or whatever. But just, 
The Wizengamot is so weird. A, how do you become a member of the Wizengamot? I guess you're just Dumbledore, Fudge, or somebody really important. I think you're, I think it's appointed. Okay. I think it's an appointment. Well, also, it's fucked up that the Minister of Magic is presiding over Wizengamot cases, because where's the separation of powers I here? I know, I know. You know? Well, like, also... we can't have the executive and the judiciary on the same side. And you just, you just do an up or down vote, like, randomly when someone decides it's time to vote. Like, there's no, there's no kind of, like regular order for when you make your decision yeah either. bones is just like put it to a vote guys yay or nay roll and them bones oh She's my <laughs> god i think that's not as funny as you think it is i but think we'll it's see hilarious what listeners think I, I i don't know this this trial's a this trial's a shit show you know what's also really weird why does percy have to take notes in the scene right before this we watch a wizard dictate a report to his quill you can have quills take notes for you like percy seems totally useless that's a tiny quibble it just irritated me (laughs) like we don't need percy nobody fucking needs percy get the fuck out of here percy despite the fact that it is a total shit show you get a lot of really good characterization here cornelius fudge is growing into a really interesting villain his sort of like grasping at power and and his fear of dumbledore is just transforming him into a really horrifying adult fudge's attempt to smear harry is so ham-fisted here even when he's trying to be malevolent and machiavellian he's sort of bad at it oh like he just yeah. randomly changes the time hoping that harry will miss it and it will make him look bad and i guess that's the kind of parliamentary games that get played in these settings well sometimes. i think that he thinks that if harry misses the trial then he's just like guilty by like automatically like that seems to, it seems to me that it's not making harry look bad that right. they basically have decided that if harry doesn't show up he's just guilty which is crazy but i think fudge fudge gets a little in over his skis here because he seems to think he seems to think that it's a foregone conclusion that Harry is guilty, and I can't tell if he has just worked himself up into such a lather over Harry Potter that he truly does think Harry is guilty, or if he's just trying to dispose of Harry. He knows this is kind of bullshit, but it's just a good pretense. I think he genuinely doesn't believe the story about the Dementors. Okay. I think he's. I think the shock that he's feeling is partly that he's like, oh, fuck, this is true. But that's like enraging him at but the same time. But that's making him really, really angry because he thought he like had him. Yeah. Because the thing is like, we learn this way later, but Fudge didn't actually send the Dementors after Harry. It was Umbridge. Yeah, but I think acting extracurricularly. Right, yeah. I don't think Fudge knew. But correct us if we're wrong. Obviously, well, that we'll would, get there. Yeah, obviously that would make, <laughs> that would put Fudge in like a totally different light. I really don't think that Fudge knew about the Dementors. Well, Fudge should have looked into this all. He should have done a little more due diligence here to avoid embarrassing himself in open court. Oh, my God. He's making such a fool of himself. Yeah. All he would have had to do is just, like, check. Then maybe he would have been able to discredit Harry, but he wouldn't have had the risk of, like, oh, this story is true and they can prove it and now I look like an ass. Right, well, that's Fudge's like fatal flaw as a leader, right? He gets obsessed with his own version of events. Right. And he's unable to... See past Like it. see competing versions of events. Yeah, this looks really bad on Fudge. And he's so dismissive of Fig. Oh, I know. He's really gross about her. Yeah. Um... Why don't they track squibs? Yeah, you think you'd want to, if they keep track of the entire magical population and they're obsessed with maintaining secrecy, you think you would at least want squibs in the phone book, right? Yeah, it's like, how easy would it be for like a disillusioned Argus Filch or Mrs. Fig to just like blow the lid off this whole thing? To just like go out into the muggle world and be like, hey, guess what there are? Or sell, like, potions they picked up on Diagon Alley on the, like, muggle black market. Yeah. (laughs) It just seems like squibs should probably be, like, in your Rolodex just for, like, just to kind of dot your I's and cross your T's. But that's not what they're good at. Squibs are probably pretty happy not to be under too much ministry supervision. (laughs) Yeah, but it's dumb of the ministry. Yeah, well, this blows up in Fudge's face, right? Anytime they overlook a member of the magical community, it ends up backfiring. Yep. Big time. 
So this is the first time we are meeting, I would say, top five characters in Harry Potter, period. In terms of, like, how effective they are, how well-written, how singular, and just excellent. Dolores Umbridge strikes cold, cold fear into my heart. She is the best villain in the series. Yeah, she's way better I have than been Lovo. looking forward to Dolores Umbridge for four books. She is phenomenal. In the complete silence that greeted these words, the witch to the right of Fudge leaned forward so that Harry saw her for the first time. He thought she looked just like a large, pale toad. She was rather squat with a broad, flabby face, as little neck as Uncle Vernon, and a very wide, slack mouth. Her eyes were large, round, and slightly bulging. Even the little black velvet bow perched on top of her short, curly hair put him in mind of a large fly she was about to catch on a long, sticky tongue. The chair recognizes Dolores Jane Umbridge, senior undersecretary to the minister said Fudge. The witch spoke in a fluttery, girlish, high-pitched voice that took Harry aback. He had been expecting a croak. I'm sure I must have misunderstood you, Professor Dumbledore, she said with a simper that left her big round eyes as cold as ever. So silly of me, but it sounded for a teasy moment as though you were suggesting that the Ministry of Magic had ordered an attack on this boy. She gave a silvery laugh that made the hairs on the back of Harry's neck stand up. A few other members of the Wizengamot laughed with her. It could not have been plainer that not one of them was really amused. She represents something even more terrifying than Voldemort. Just the kind of cold... The, like, mercenary... Yeah, the mercenary who doesn't really, like, believe in anything and will execute any order. Yeah. yeah. You know? She's, like, this... the ultimate deputy but in this way that's like very unlike someone like peter pettigrew like she's not a stooge she's just like here for power and here to make sure that she is on the side in power no matter what in this way that's just chilling a thing that does bother me about umbridge is how ugly she is i think it's really uncreative to have our villains be physically sort of not conventionally attractive it's like i don't know that she has to look like a toad in order for her to be bad. But... The contrast between her voice and her appearance is what's kind of interesting and unsettling. Yeah, the 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 really girlish voice, the kind of like fluttery laugh, the that whole thing is what makes her really horrifying. The difference between her affect and like her words. It's interesting in the movies... They don't make her look grotesque. No, she and... She looks really regular. I actually think movie Umbridge just physically is much more effective because she's just so normal. She could just be anybody. She could be anybody. She just looks like a n- woman in her 50s. Right. A British woman. Yeah, in, she yeah. looks like a just a bureaucrat, basically. Yeah, I think that the grotesqueness actually kind of takes away from her power a little bit in the books because it's just really really boring to have all your villains be ugly um lockhart's not ugly yeah that's true and tom riddle himself was an attractive young man but tom riddle isn't the villain but let me no no, i hear let me put this the other way it's really frustrating to have all of your quote-unquote unattractive characters also be villainous not all the villains are unattractive but all the unattractive people are bad guys like all the slytherins are ugly that's just boring so yeah. I think that takes away from some of the effectiveness of Umbridge, but regardless of that, she is just the worst, and oh, I'm so, so excited about so, her in this book. She's so bad. She's such a little Nazi. She doesn't have an ideology at all. She just wants to be on the side that's winning. I guess she is. She's anti-centaur, and uh, that's true. She's she's a bigot. She's pretty old. She's pretty old school. No, I mean she's more than old school. She's like a. Right. a a blood purist. Right. So. But her ideology has way less to do with blood purity and way more to do with just like wanting to like claw her way into the side that's in charge. Well, we only get a little taste of her in this chapter, but we know she's going to be important because she's sitting in the shadows and Harry can't see who she is at first. And so. she leans forward and she's so surprising. That is ta- that is top villain behavior. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sitting back in them shadows. 
So then we have our dear and darling Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. It's hilarious that Brian is his second to last name. It is quite funny. And he's really interesting in this scene. He plays pretty fast and loose with being a defense attorney. <laughs> he just says he's a witness for the defense. He doesn't actually say he's an attorney. Well, obviously, but that's what he is. He's, right. he's acting as Harry's defender. But in the meantime, he's like, really, we should put, be putting you on trial. <laughs> Which, like, that's just a really bold choice. If you think about it, though, he's just been removed from the Wizengamot. He's there to defend Harry, but this is one of his few opportunities to address, like, the assembled judges. Right, and actually you can see that, like, it makes an impact. Because, like, Madame Bones, her eyes widen when she kind of realizes that the Dementor thing is real. She's like, wait, really, what were they doing there? So he is getting this opportunity to kind of sidelong, like, make the case, like... Shit is going down, like, Lord Voldemort is back. The reason that a crazy thing happened is because a crazy thing is happening. Please believe me. We get some good exposition about the Ministry's fast slide into authoritarianism, because I love this moment when Dumbledore is having to remind them that the law is actually on Harry's side, because there is a law that says if you're underage, you can use magic to defend yourself to save your life and fudge says laws can be changed and dumbledore says yeah you've you're holding like full-fledged trials to deal with underage magic and even before that tried to destroy this kid's wand without even having a trial like clearly rule of law is meaning less and less to y'all but we're gonna do this right so Fudge is just, like, rapidly moving to uh, erode those norms that have governed the wizarding world until now. Well, and then we have the really upsetting Harry-Dumbledore dynamic here. Harry, almost more than he wants Dumbledore to make a good case for him, just wants Dumbledore to acknowledge him. Right. Like, you can see that becoming, like, the thing that he desires most in this scene. And Dumbledore just really won't throw Harry a bone in the way that's really upsetting and really damaging. And, you know, this is going to continue through the whole book. Like, Dumbledore is deliberately and with a purpose distancing himself from Harry. But it's it's very upsetting, especially when it's like, bro, like, Harry has no one. Please, like, just give him some comfort. Just sparkle your eyes at him once. Twinkle. Twinkle your eyes at him. Yeah. What's Dumbledore there to do if not have his, his eyes, eyes twinkle. be twinkling? Yeah. I just feel really bad for Harry. And I don't know. It's really good that he gets off, obviously. But this whole thing is so stressful and so unfair and so upsetting. And then to have Dumbledore, on top of all of that, refuse to acknowledge him. Harry just must be a wreck. So Heather, who's your unsung hero? So my unsung hero is Mrs. Fig. Because she actually does a really brave thing here. She goes before a wizard in court. She tells her piece. She does a really, really good job. You know, she really does Harry a solid. And she doesn't have to. She doesn't get treated well by the wizarding world. She's a squib. She's not treated with respect at this court appearance. She's so disrespected. And, you know, she just does the right thing in this way that's really cool. And when she kind of gets her stride, she tells a really effective story and she gets him off. So... She just, like, deserves a lot of credit for making sure that Harry Potter doesn't get forever exiled from the wizarding world. Because let's be real, if you get expelled from Hogwarts... You're not going to get your wizarding GED. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're not getting out the other side of this. This this disciplinary practice is kind of the end of your life as a wizard. Yeah, it seems like a really insane punishment. It's an insane punishment. Although I guess... Secrecy is the thing that this society values most, so if you jeopardize it, they must feel it's worth punishing to an extreme extent. But, I mean, the thing that's crazy is it's not like you can just go to another school. Right. You can't stay a wizard, essentially. Like, look at what has happened to Hagrid. Hagrid can't really, truly be a wizard. Yeah, he can't, like, change jobs. No, he's stuck. So they're really trying to, like, doom Harry in a way that's very upsetting. Anyway. It's really fucked up. Mrs. Fig pretty much single-handedly prevents that. So, like, shout out to her. Absolutely. Who's yours? Mine is Perkins, 
who's a solid co-worker. He just shows up, he knows this hearing's important to Arthur and Harry, who he's never even met Harry, and uh, he just provides some much-needed intel at the crucial moment. Good job, Perkins. Yep, I wonder what his first name is. Perky. (laughs) Perky Perkins. Perky Perkins, I don't know. This week's episode is brought to you by the Office of Ludicrous Patents. A ridiculously high level of legal protection for your most ridiculous ideas. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They're from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. You can find us wherever you find podcasts. And while you're there, we would love it if you would go rate and review us. And of course, um, don't forget to subscribe. We got our first one-star review this week, so we're really making it in the world. You can find us on social media. We are at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can go see our one-star review on Instagram because we very proudly posted it. You can also shoot us an email at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. We love getting e-owls from you. And we've got a special treat for you. Sunday, February 4th, we'll be having a superb owl special for the Super Bowl. Yep. An all Quidditch, all sports shouting edition of the Quibbler. And after that, which we hope you very much enjoy, next week's chapters will be also from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, The Woes of Mrs. Weasley, and Luna Lovegood. Thanks, amigos. Ah, he said, grinning, as he extracted a copy of a magazine entitled The Quibbler from its mist. Yes, yes, he's right. I'm sure Sirius will find that very amusing. Oh, dear. Sitting on top of Mr. Weasley's overflowing in-tray was an old toaster that was hiccuping in a disconsolate way and a pair of empty leather gloves that were twiddling their thumbs. Right, and the first time somebody gets mad, the toaster could eat their hand. No, 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 we put a warning label on it, we don't have any liability. Ah! Ow! Ow! How did you ever go for it? The old man-eating toaster... Get out!